You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Welcome into another episode of the Swamp 247 podcast. My name is Jacob Rudner alongside Swamp 247 staff writer Graham Hall as always. And Graham, uh, a lot to talk about on this episode of the Swamp 247 podcast. Florida is officially a quarter of the way through its regular season uh, of the football calendar, which feels somewhat crazy to say. Feels like everything just got started a day ago. However, yes, it is true. Florida is 2-1 and one through three games, uh, has victories over then number seven, Utah in its season opener, and an unranked victory over USF. And we are here to talk about specifically uh, that game and kind of give a quarter-season report. Florida beat the Bulls 31-28. I think a lot of people, uh, myself and yourself included, felt that that was a little bit too narrow a gap of a victory between a team like Florida and a team like USF, which had entered play just 4-19 and over its previous 23 games dating back to the start of the 2020 season when head coach Jeff Scott took over the program. So uh, I I think that there were a lot of areas that raised uh, some questions for me. I had said before this game, so had you, uh, that this would kind of be an opportunity for us and fans to learn a lot about this team, uh, even though it was what we thought should have been a a lopsided matchup entering play. Florida, of course, was a uh, 24-point favorite, or as high as a 24-point favorite uh, leading up to the matchup. That did not look to be the case uh, once the game actually started. So I will go to you with this question in mind first. I would like to hear your thoughts generally uh, on Florida's performance in that game. Maybe one or two things that stood out to you, and then we will get the discussion here a little bit more. uh, Just kind of about how things went for Florida in that game and kind of what we expect moving forward here based on those thoughts. Yeah, I think that certainly from Florida's perspective, I think that since that Utah win, you could make a case that Florida has gotten, I think, a little bit overconfident um, these last two games. I think especially going into this game against a USF team, which has not looked thoroughly impressive throughout the Jeff Scott you know, tenure. I think that Florida maybe was looking ahead to their first SEC road trip of the game, thinking that they could come out here and establish themselves pretty easily against a run defense. And you and I talked about this, a run defense that ranked near the bottom of FBS coming into the weekend, allowing nearly, what, 295 yards on the ground. And Florida had a pretty potent rushing attack between Montreal Johnson, Trevor Etienne, and and Naquan Wright. So I think the inability for Florida to just dominate the game with their rushing attack was something that stood out to me first and foremost. I know that Anthony Richardson was coming off a performance where he went 14 of 35, and this should have been an opportunity for him to throw a limited amount of passes in, I think, some desirable scenarios because Florida would be able to command the game with their rushing attack. And that didn't stand, that that was not 
something that I saw against the Bulls there. You know, give them a lot of credit, obviously, for their defensive effort. But Florida, I think, looked better in the run game against Utah and against Kentucky. So that absolutely was something that I think was apparent and, and a concern, I think, for this team. They have to get back on track in that regard. And then, you know, obviously, Anthony Richardson's performance, many people hoped that he would go out there and, I think, alleviate some of the concerns, let's say that, maybe not erase any of the concerns that you've seen from him after that Kentucky game, but it would be, I think, a maybe a bounce back performance for him, get some of his confidence back before having to go to Neyland Stadium in front of a huge crowd, his first road trip start, even though, you know, he's been to LSU, he's, he's faced some hostile environments before. This is really something they were really hoping to get his confidence back in store for before going on the road to that game. And that didn't happen. That was, I think, absolutely a huge issue for Florida and something that, you know, they have to feel a little bit wary about because this was supposed to be a game we're going to, I mean, predict 50 points. I said 41. We thought that Florida would handily win this game. And I think that is the biggest takeaway is that they were unable to do that. And frankly, we're very fortunate to avoid overtime against a USF team that had a ton of momentum and had answers for Richardson all night in the past game. Yeah. I, here's the thing. I, the, the the big thing for me is that I, I think that there was a lot of panic from the fan base after this game. And I think that that's understandable because you have a lot of people who, like us, as you said, you know, entered the, enter the contest with a mindset where, you know, it's one of those things where it should be over by halftime. I, you and I were joking about how, uh, you know, this would be one of those games where we would be able to write our stories by halftime because it would be over. You know, Florida would, would be able to pull ahead. And there are a lot of people who would tell you, that was an unreasonable expectation. It's the same team basically that, you know, Dan Mullen had last year and he left it for Billy Napier. And that's how it works in college coaching when there's a coaching change. So, you know, you have uh, a coach without his talent and, you know, they might not agree with the way that he wants to play football and all those kinds of things. And those are factors. Those are things that, that need to be kept in mind. I do still feel personally that, there is a degree to which coaching plays a role and there are certain teams that you should be able to separate from. And now I, I understand that there's a mentality amongst uh, the group of coaches, Napier, Saban, you know, they all share this kind of sentiment where there's no such thing as a team that's a massive underdog or a massive favorite. Every team is, you know, the toughest team we're going to face. And it, the only thing that matters is, the opponent that weekend. And I agree with that. I think that that's a, a sound mindset, uh, but I think it's a sound mindset in practice, meaning I think it's a good way to approach a game as a coach to his team, to his players and say, this is the focus let's not get ahead of ourselves and zoom in on a trip to Knoxville where we're going to take on a ranked Tennessee team prior to getting through USF. I think that's perfectly fine. And it's normal. Team coaches will do that. And it appears Billy Napier is one of those people. But I think while that's a perfectly acceptable thing in the messaging from coach to players, I don't know that it's the reality. Period. I don't think it's I don't think it's the big picture reality. I think that both things can be true. I think that Florida's players and coaches and support staff uh and everybody around the program, I think even media included, should look at or can look at the game as 
you know, this is Florida's top priority right now. We don't need to move past this. This isn't a throwaway game. It still matters. It will count towards the end of season record. However, I just feel like there needed to be more, I don't know if disappointment is the right word, but I guess I was confused by the reaction. I felt like there was a lot of, we did fine, and and this is good. We're proud to get a win. A win is a win, and it was the tough. It was a tough team. Uh, it was, you know, they were billed to be some 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 bad group that was going to come in here and roll over, and we were going to to beat them up. And that was the message that was chosen post game. And so I will parlay my what I just said into a question for you. I, where do you stand on that? Where where do you sit with the whole, you know, a win is a win versus we should have been able to beat up on this team because we were viewed as, and, and reasonably so, we were viewed as heavy favorites. Where, where do you sit on this? Because for me, it's pretty murky water, and I'm not sure that the direction that it went after Florida's three-point win over a team like USF was the direction that, if it were up to me, I would have chosen. Yeah, it's a really good question because I think that you're in a place right now, not just you, Jacob, but Billy Napier, his coaching staff, they're in a place in Gainesville where – fans are accustomed to not just winning the football game, but blowing out inferior opposition. And historically, no matter who the coach is, whether it's Steve Spurrier, Ron Zook, Urban Meyer, Will Muschamp, Jim McElwain, Dan Mullen, and now Billy Napier, if that coach goes out there and wins a one-possession game against an opponent that Florida is favored heavily against, I think that ultimately that is going to raise questions and that's part of what the stakes are at Florida. That's part of the it means more mantra of not just the SEC, but especially of a place like Gainesville, where they're still considered, may, maybe not as much externally, but internally, the expectations in Gainesville are that you handedly defeat opponents where you have a talent gap. And I think that this is something that is worth watching when it comes to Billy Napier. And I know that, you know, he had success in his last three years at Louisiana. And I don't mean this to disparage him whatsoever, but this is nothing new for Billy Napier. You know, that Utah game, he was asked about his record. And I made this point to you the other day. He made, he was asked about his record in one possession games that he was 17 and three. And I made the point to you, well, you know, how many of those games do you think Louisiana was the heavy favorite possibly? If you go back even to last season at Louisiana and look at what, the Raging Cajuns did last year in Napier's final year after losing to Texas, you know, they win very narrowly at home by one point. They also had one position wins over Arkansas state, Georgia Southern, um, you know, arc. I mean, it was not a resounding, I think, you know, beat down of many opponents last year in the Sunbelt. And I think that for Billy Napier, he has, you know, whistled the tune of, we're happy to get the win. We respect the other opponent. They did a lot of things well, but look, we're victorious, even if we didn't win by as many as many people predicted. Ultimately, it's the outcome that he's, what, now 18-3 and three in right. one-possession games that I think a lot of people, you know, that's the big picture in a sense. But in Gainesville, when you're facing teams like USF where the statistics significantly favor you and you have a talent gap and you're ranked as a top 15 roster in terms of team talent by by our site. I think that absolutely you 
are going to just have this natural expectation that you're going to blow some opponents out. And Billy Napier, while he has done that in the past, still think he, as 43-year-old head coach, is still understanding sometimes what it takes for his formula to pull away from some teams in the end of games. And that is, you know, a coaching critique. I'm obviously not an expert in the regard of judging his in-game coaching, but when you look at the results, F- Florida, you know, a Napier team beating a team by a narrow margin is nothing new for him as a head coach. And it's going to be part of, I think his progression showing that he can consistently improve in doing that beating teams handedly that, that his teams should be. Right. And I, I think there's one point that I want to make before we move on to our next subject. And that is that there are people and, 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 and this is not the majority of the Florida fan base. Let's just be really clear. This is a, a loud minority, but I, I'm going to speak to it for a second. I don't think just so people know our stance, you are not, and I am not even remote. The thoughts not crossing my mind. It's not something that is a, factor for me yet or will be a factor anytime soon i am not writing off billy napier or any of his coaches in any way shape or form there are people who have done that already i think that that is preposterous and so i've i i am not shying away from that opinion i think that if if you have seen three games of what billy napier has done and you don't like what you see and you've decided it's just going to be another one of those situations where, you know, you're going to enter the cycle of a four-year coach and it's going to be, we're going to, everybody's going to go through this all over again in the, in the not too distant future. That is a preposterous stance to take. It is way, way too early to be making any of those kinds of, of decisions or consideration, nothing. It, it's too early. Now, is there a world in which you can reasonably disagree with how certain things within the operation have gone through three games from a game management perspective? Of course you can reasonably disagree with those kinds of things. That, that doesn't have to do necessarily with, you know, uh, the team he inherited or all those kinds of things. Billy Napier has made it very clear that he is going to run the offense. He sees his best fit for the personnel he has and, that's that's his goal. That's what he wants to do. He wants to instill discipline. He wants to find the playmakers who are on this roster and identify the weaknesses of this roster throughout the season. And those are things that he will still be able to do. But to write him off through three games, absurd. Uh, let's let's move on uh, and talk about some of the in-game decision-making that went on in this USF game. And, and, and also, I'll open the floor to you to kind of go bigger picture here now that we are a quarter of the way through. Uh, if you have any any bigger takes. I think I'll, I'll open this, though, with I am itching to see Florida make a more concerted effort at this stage in the game to get the ball to its playmakers. I think that there needs to be uh, an increased level of urgency to force feed a group of offensive players that are clearly, in my mind, at this point, better than the people around them. So I'm talking about Montrell Johnson primarily. I'm talking about Trevor Etienne very closely behind Johnson. Uh, Ricky Pearsall is my third guy. And this might sound weird, but I think the quarterback, Anthony Richardson, is my fourth player who needs to touch the ball more. And when I say that, I mean, let the guy run. And I get that there are concerns with the depth behind him. And you have to be cautious because if he gets hurt, you're in a lot of trouble. But 
you have to start weighing the the cost benefit here of do we risk it a little bit more and kind of let the quarterback go be himself and do what he needs to do or do we try and protect him and be more cautious and whatever the byproduct of that is whatever the the performance result of that is is what it is um i don't think florida has done a good enough job through three games plainly of getting the ball to those people i just mentioned and i think that it could make a difference in games how do you feel about that what have been your takeaways kind of on the way that the games have been called from a play calling perspective, from a management perspective? What, what, what are your observations of the USF game? And then let's, let's zoom out and let's talk about that big picture for a second. Yeah. I think with Richardson, if Florida is going to continue to shoot down the indication that he is injured, if, if they're strictly limiting him and how he's used as a mobile quarterback based on, worst case scenario, I can just tell people right away, that's not going to sit right with a lot of people out there. If you are limiting yourselves off of what could go wrong, I think that you aren't fully doing everything possible to win the game. And people have seen what Richardson can do in the open field. You can't take that away. The long runs, hurtling over defenders, making guys miss, standing backflips. I mean, they have seen glimpses of his athleticism in games and out of games. And when you suddenly have that disappear, that is going to lead to questions. And if you shoot down the health concerns, then it's going to turn to your decision-making process as a head coach. And I think that we are getting to that point right now. And that's why I think some of this speculation isn't necessarily unfair because we have had Billy Napier's own comments, fully truthful or not. He has said that he has, you know made some decisions based on the perspective depth behind Richardson right now, where Jack Miller is still a couple of weeks away from returning. It's not going to be this weekend. It's not going to be against Eastern Washington. You're maybe talking about Missouri at the midpoint of the season. They, until that happens, I think have to be extremely cautious of where what they do with Richardson, the scenarios that they put him in, the hits that he can take. Even if he has to leave for one play, you and I have said this, it limits incredibly what he's going to do or what Florida's offense can do, excuse me, on the field. And so that is something that Florida has admitted now after this USF game and after the questions continue to stack up about Richardson, they've acknowledged that this is a guy that they have to be very cautious with at times and not allow him to take some unnecessary hits. And and that frankly makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, he's done a really good job escaping pressure in the pocket, getting outside, using his feet. One of the sacks that he's uh, credited against, you know, taking was him getting out of the pocket and, and, getting away from, you know, the, the incoming tackle and not putting himself in harm's way. You've seen him slide and come up a little bit, even limping doing that. Florida, I think, has to, uh, you know, just seeing what has already happened to Richardson in his career, I think I understand why they would do that. But clearly, he is in a place right now as a thrower where if you're not using his legs, he is not really, I think, giving Florida its best chance to win if he's not making those throws. And then your point about Montreal Johnson and, and Trevor Etienne, all I got to say about that, and then I'll turn this back over to you, is that I can understand why it would be incredibly difficult to pass a guy like Naquan Wright, who was on the team last year, who worked his way back from injury, who does a lot really, really well, I think that doesn't necessarily show up on film and maybe isn't you know what people are are grading him based on is he may be lacking explosion in the run game right now. Yes, but he is really good in pass pro. You can make a case that he's Florida's best pass catching back right now, but they're really not using 
the backs in that capacity. And Montrell and Trevor have had more success in the open field and in between the tackles. So I think that right now for Florida, it's difficult for them to maybe make a switch in the rotation or change the usage based off of those three games after seeing what Naquan has provided um, for the last 10 months, even, you know, especially in leadership. But right now with Florida, I think struggling on offense, you may need to make some of those difficult decisions based on what gives you the best chance on the field rather than the guy that you may respect the most in the locker room, as difficult of a decision as that is. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launcher online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast yeah and and i think that that's fair where i stand on this is that i i'm okay with a running back rotation i i don't i think that there are a lot of people out there who are heavily against that or you know that they, they view a running back rotation is something that's disruptive to rhythm or whatever the case may be. And, and, and I think that there's validity to those arguments. I don't think that that's necessarily wrong, but even Florida's running backs would tell you, and I, I actually believe them when they say it, you know, this is something that's going to allow them to stay fresh later on in the year, plain and simple. And it's true. You know, if you are distributing between six and 10 carries a game to your running backs, the reality is, is that you get to game eight, or game seven of the season, and that guy is a more rested running back than somebody who averages 20 carries a game just by virtue of being on the field and, and being used less. And so I, I, I see value there. I just, where I don't understand necessarily the decision-making is if a guy gets really hot, so we're talking about gets the ball, is somebody that's going to be difficult to bring down, is operating you know, smoothly and is effective and producing almost every time or every time, why 
why is there not an in-game switch, an in an in-game decision, excuse me, where somebody on the sideline is going, this guy is not going to be stopped right now. And by the way, if it was a blowout, if Florida was winning by three possessions or whatever, you know, even two possessions for the majority of the game and, and Billy Napier wanted to distribute the running back carries and you, you give Montreal Johnson six touches and, you know, there, Florida only had one offensive possession in the second quarter after he opened that frame with a 62-yard rushing touchdown. He, he didn't touch the ball after the rushing touchdown. His next carry came in the third quarter. So I don't understand that. I, I, I think that that is one of those things. Here's the other thing. That was only one carry. He picked up 62 yards on one carry. So it's not like you're sparing him you know, that much more workload if you're going to put him back on the field in your next offensive series and let him go run the ball again. And it makes me wonder how many situations existed within the USF game where had you put on a Montreal Johnson or a Trevor Etienne and just put the ball in their hands, how many more scores could Florida have had than it did in this game? My prime example of this was the second interception Anthony Richardson threw with about five minutes left in the game. Montreal Johnson had just rushed the ball for 34 yards on three carries in that drive alone and then on the five yard line first and goal florida throws a pass into the end zone that was intercepted now like billy napier said there was reason and good reason for going to a pass it was anthony richardson's decision he made the right read he threw to the right receiver it was just a bad ball but the way i view it why take that risk why assume any risk of any interception, of a bad pat, like why? I just want to understand why the call, and, and by the way, this could be on Anthony Richardson exclusively and not on Billy Napier, but I, I, whoever made the decision to throw that ball, I would love to know why it is that that is not 10 times out of 10, it's first down, we're having running success, here's the ball, we're running the ball. And it's going to go to the guy who's been the most effective on the ground. And if it doesn't work, we can throw on second down. But the difference between what I just said and what happened is there is a second down to make a decision on. Florida didn't get another chance because it took a risk. And and again, is there room for risk in football? Always. We talked about it last week when we talked about decisions to go forward or not on fourth downs, you know, based on where you are on the field. Billy Napier has talked in the past about how there are certain situations where he likes to take on more risk than perhaps a more traditional more conservative coach might. And I think that those are great things. I think Florida fans should be excited about that, that there's somebody in the building who is going to push the envelope in certain situations where it could really benefit you. Obviously it could hurt you, but sometimes it's worth it. This was not one of those places where it was worth it. Florida was trailing. It was 24, it was 24, 21 at the time. Uh, Florida, where did I get that wrong? Sorry. It was 28, 24. USF was leading. Florida chooses to throw the pass. It's intercepted. It looks for a while like that could be maybe even something that that gives USF a crazy unexpected win. Florida is lucky to get an interception on the next on the on the ensuing defensive drive that changes the game. And how does Florida win the game? By the way, they run the ball. They run the ball. So I have a lot of questions at this point about the decision-making in certain spots. I, I don't know that the, the overall decision-making has been what some people have labeled to be a disaster or any of that. That's 
let's let's slow our roll and pump the brakes a little bit. I think, however, that there are certain spots where I wouldn't mind seeing things done differently. I think there could be better decisions made uh, for the team. Let's talk defense, Graham. Uh, talked a lot about the offense, Anthony Richardson, and, and the play calling. Uh, this was not the best defensive performance for Florida. We had seen in the previous two games, actually, I think you and I were both quite impressed with the way Florida's defense played, uh, especially given its lack of depth. In this game, however, they allow 216 rushing yards total to USF in the first half alone, 283 on the game. Uh, it is one of the highest first half rushing totals by a Florida opponent in recent history. Uh, Billy Napier has not really said that that's on his defense. He has uh, given USF's offensive game plan a lot more credit than I think he has claimed that his defense was was the culprit uh, in that success. And that could be true. So I, I will just go for uh, your thoughts on maybe what led to that uh, and what your reaction to those comments was. Yeah, USF Jeff, uh, coach Jeff Scott said that from an execution standpoint, it was USF's best game since he had arrived, you know, 24 games ago. So give USF a lot of credit there. Um, obviously, that came at the expense of Florida's lack of execution on defense, though. I, I think that that's easily the flip side of the coin that you could take away from that. And I really go back even before the USF game to the end of the Kentucky game. You know, Ventro Miller plays 75% of that game and then has to exit late and with Florida having made a lot of consequential decisions for, on the offensive side of the ball. And then the Wildcats, who I think had struggled, you know, really to run the ball through much of the game and were missing Chris Rodriguez and a few other guys. I mean, Kavosi Smoke had little trouble establishing himself in the fourth quarter against the Gators without Ventrell Miller in there with, with Scooby Williams in there for the final eight plays there and Shamar James in there and Amari Bernie in there without Ventrell Miller, Kentucky had more success on the ground than they had had the entire night. And I think that with Florida, you know, starting Scooby Williams there, a guy who really had not played much coming into the game, and then Shamar and Amari, like I said, you know, there was an absolute drop-off in terms of Florida's rush defense without Ventrell Miller there. That is no secret. That was absolutely the case last year. I mean, you can go back to the, the beginning of the last season and see where Florida's defense absolutely took a nosedive with Ventrell out of that game from an effectiveness standpoint and an efficiency standpoint. You know, I think that absolutely when you and talk about a guy like Ventrell Miller who led Florida in tackles and was second in another season, I mean, that's a guy who has established himself as a sound tackler and a knowledgeable guy on the field. And, and when you lose a guy like that, you don't just instantly plug in someone and have them take over. You know, I know that this team is full of experienced, you know, you know, players, but the depth at inside linebacker behind Ventral Miller was something you and I wrote about a lot, not just in the spring, but in our fall previews. I mean, we talked about this, this unit only having six scholarship guys and a significant, you know, drop off in depth behind Miller and Bernie. And I think that coming into this game, knowing that Ventrell wasn't going to play and that Florida may be without him, will be without him for a couple of weeks, at least moving forward. I think that absolutely you can see the correlation between Florida struggling to stop the run and Miller not being out there. So really that was not as big of a surprise to me as I think that maybe, you know, even the coaching staff, found it as because if you were watching last season if you knew the importance of Ventrell Miller you knew I think that 
a drop-off was very likely no matter who the opponent was. And now you're going in to face an, another opponent in Tennessee that has a very capable offense. You know, obviously we're not talking about that, but that is certainly a concern for Florida right now. But absence of Ventral Miller has changed the ceiling of this Florida defense that which you and I both agree through seven quarters was, I think, extremely sound this season. Yeah, I would agree with that. I I think that, first of all, we, we you and I on the podcast have been very uh, effusive in our praise of Patrick Toney. Uh, we like what he does defensively. Hasn't changed for me. Has not changed for me. I think that a lot of people... Uh, here, here's the thing. I, I think that there's a lot of people who expect us to be overly negative in our comments after a game like this. That's not the case. It, it, it is... One game, three games into a coaching tenure, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be figured out. Florida hasn't shied away from that. It's still the case. I think uh, Patrick Tony is a good coach. Uh, he definitely has a scheme, I think, that works. But like Billy Napier has said, that there's going to be a lot of fine-tuning that needs to happen over the course of this year. Uh, there's going to be a lot of lessons learned from an uh, operational standpoint with some of these players figuring out you know, how things are supposed to be done with these new coaches. Um I think there was an element of that that we saw pretty clearly in this game of a lot of guys really trying to figure stuff out. And then you compound that with the one guy who teammates have seemingly unanimously kind of labeled as this 4D player, what Billy Napier has, the term uh, that Billy Napier has coined for guys who know the responsibilities of everybody on their side of the ball plus the responsibilities of everybody on the other side of the ball, making them a 4, a 4D player. Um, Ventral Miller is one of those guys. Ventral Miller has been labeled as somebody who is uh, a communicator, a field general. Uh, Javon Dexter called him the heart of Florida's defense. So let's consider as, as listeners and, and speakers here together what the effect of losing said heartbeat, said field general, while having to deal with the challenges of learning about the scheme and you know getting to a point with scheme fluency that everybody's going to play their role perfectly and you know there might be some guys within the defense who are kind of stuck in the mentality and the mindset of what the old staff at the university of florida was okay with and allowed and that's not going to fly under billy napier and his coaching staff so yes florida was extremely disappointing in its defensive performance in this game uh, particularly against the run, giving up an absurd amount of production uh, to an inferior opponent. However, I personally have took away... The thing that I walked away from this game with was two things. One, I think we can clearly see how important Ventrell Miller is as a leader. Uh, we have seen two completely different teams, one with him on the field and one with him off the field. And it is night and day, not even close. So that speaks volumes to me about how effective he is as a communicator and the second thing is is that there's no part of the field where it's clear there's no phase of the game where it's clearer than in defense that florida has a lot of work to do to get to the point that it needs to be to be consistently competitive on the field i think that and again let me be clear that's not a billy napier's fault type thing that's not a patrick tony's fault type thing that is here are the players that you have at your disposal here's who you've inherited you want to do your thing you want to increase the discipline but these are potentially players who aren't used to that level of discipline based on what they're coming from they've admitted that 
Trey Dean is one of the people who's come out and outright said, you know, the the things that we're asked to do off the field with this coaching staff don't even slightly resemble what the requirements were under the previous regime. And so to me, I think that you melt all those things together and the result is kind of what we saw against USF, a disjointed uh, lack of communication, uh, you know, kind of just poor positioning, poor tackling. Uh, and to me, what kind of seemed like a general lack of awareness uh, for the situation. And how do you get to that point? Well, all of the factors that I just said, I think, contribute to that uh, and, and lead to that situation. So uh, I think there needs to be more credit given uh, to this coaching staff, to the players to a degree. Uh, I think that there are performances that are worth admiring on an individual level. Uh, and this is kind of going to be a year of that. When I say this, none of it is surprising to me. None of it. If I were a fan of Florida, none of this would be necessarily disappointing to me because the reality is you and I have been saying for months that this is a program that was going to be average with its record, with its play. All of it would would come out to have a result that would appear kind of average, and that's not Billy Napier's fault. It's just not a team that was set up for great success or blowing people away. That's why I said before the season, if Florida wins seven games, I think it should be viewed as a success under Billy Napier in its first season with him as its head coach. So uh, I will use that to transition to the last thing I want to talk about with you. And that's what do fans need to hear? What do fans need to have in mind as we go forward and start to take on this final three quarters of the year, which opens with a very difficult matchup, uh, a, a game in Knoxville, again, in front of a sold out crowd against number 11 uh, in the country. This is going to be a very tough game. So what, what is it that you would say to people about the expectations moving forward? Have they changed for you? Or are you right where you were before the season? Yeah, I think perspective is good, right? I think that's the first thing I want to say is that, you know, if you told a lot of people at the beginning of the season when Florida was saying, many were saying about Florida, that September was the most difficult month for them of any team in the nation. If you had told Florida going into Tennessee that they'd be 2-1, and one, whether that win came against Kentucky or Utah, or others of the score, they took care of business against USF and still had everything to necessarily play for. I think a lot of people would have taken that, including Billy Napier and his coaching staff. Now, are they satisfied with the product on the field, the depth, the discipline, the lack of penalties? I mean, no, I, I don't think absolutely they are satisfied by any means, but I think the results right now, that's the perspective that is important, I think, to keep. Because many people had kind of been indifferent to the results, right? Billy Napier even, I think, had preached often that he didn't want to be so result-oriented and it wanted it more to be about the process of growth, the process of development, understanding the why. That's, I think, the big thing for Richardson, too, is, is he going to make mistakes? Yeah, that's part of his growing process. That is what Napier has said since he arrived on campus. The real concern would be if he didn't understand the why, and that is something that Napier repeated after that USF game. And as long as he continues to make improvements, I, I think that you will see a lot of the long-term concern just evaporate necessarily. You've yeah. seen that Napier's pattern for success after one year, once he gets his guys in the building, has established continuity, has established the scheme, Everyone's familiar with the the phases throughout the year. You name it, 
I think that the results recently at Louisiana show that the guy is capable of double-digit winning seasons and keeping his team in the national conversation, you know, no matter how the dominoes end up falling, in a sense. I think that that is the perspective people should keep. As long as Richardson doesn't shy away from the development or act as if he is adequate in his performances right now or make excuses for his performance or or say, hey, well, you know, I'm not fully healthy. That's why I'm struggling out there. As long as he, I think, continues to embrace um, what comes with the process. I really liked the metaphor from Napier saying that, you know, this is just a chapter necessarily in the story of Anthony Richardson. And this still has a chance to just be a, a chapter in Napier's tenure at Florida, that things started out with promise. And then you saw that the cracks that he had spoken of were actually there and they were on track to repair them. But the work wasn't enough to, I think, compensate for the issues at hand, the lack of depth, where the roster is at right now and how inexperienced your quarterback right now is relative to the rest of the SEC. I mean, there are right. a lot of really good quarterbacks in this league right now. So I think that that is important to keep in mind for Florida. And yeah, it has realigned, I think, a lot of people's perspectives on the season. You could be in for a double-digit defeat at Tennessee, a team that has only beat Florida once in the last 17 years and really has struggled for the past three decades against the Gators. That is still possible. They have to go into College Station. They have to play an LSU team who just beat a Mississippi State team that has a quarterback performing at a higher level than Richardson right now. You know, there are cases to make here that this could even be worse than seven and five right now. And I think that still, if you keep perspective and see improvement and develop the depth behind a lot of guys in the defense and on the offensive line and, and start, you know, taking advantage of the weapons at your disposal, like you mentioned, I think that people will be able to see the silver lining, even in some undesirable results right now. But we are sitting here after a USF game where there were some questions I think about Florida's ability to do that long-term. And so right now, I think regardless of the result in Knoxville, you would like to see Florida answer some of those questions in terms of play calling, taking advantage of the weapons around them and getting a better sense of what their guys do best. All 11 guys on offense, how to get the yeah. ball to Ricky Pearsall, how to create um, in the flat, you know, who to use there even. I think, a lot of those things people would like to see Florida continue to find answers for more so than, you know, needing to go into Tennessee and, and be that team right now. Yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't have anything to add. I, I think that that's exactly what I was going to say. I just, you know, this is, I think a year where the results are less important to a degree than kind of the process to get to wherever that is. I think that uh, the the big thing moving forward is not necessarily looking and asking yourself, is Florida going to beat Tennessee? Probably not. I don't think they will. Uh, if it does, it would certainly be an upset. But but are there ways that a game against Tennessee can be really productive? And I think that there there is. I I like you just said. I would love to see how. Billy Napier adjusts. I would love to see how Patrick Tony adjusts. This is a huge challenge for Patrick Tony. This is a good moment to for Florida fans, in my opinion, to really learn what they have in their defensive coordinator. Last game was his first without, you know, the anchor of his defense, kind of his extension of the coaching staff on the field. How do you adjust a game later? It clearly didn't go well the first time. 
how do you protect yourself better in the second game to try and eliminate some of the issues? If you're Billy Napier and you're the offensive play caller, what are you going to do to either free up Anthony Richardson more? Like you said, how are you going to get the ball into Ricky Pearsall's hands more? These are the things that we can watch and 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 try and see Florida adapt and, and do. And so when fans are talking about, and again, let me be clear, this isn't everybody or even the majority, but when there are fans talking about how Billy Napier is not the guy or how there's already been a lot of talk about you know hiring an offensive coordinator, I think it's all premature. Let's give it a second. Let's see what happens. Let's see uh, how Billy Napier navigates this situation. Let's see what a, a good a game looks like after a bad performance where the offense sputters, particularly in the second half. Does Florida then come out and continue on the same note that it had at the in, in quarters three and four against USF? Or do we turn a new leaf like Billy Napier has said? Do, do we turn a new leaf and kind of start a new chapter? Does the Tennessee game look better even if it's a loss? Those are the things that I think are really good to be looking for right now. And later on in the year, we can ask ourselves the questions of what needs to happen in order to continue to feed the success of Florida football and for Florida football to try and get closer to what its fans expect of it. This is not an overnight thing. I think people need to keep that in mind. This is not or was not one of those situations where Billy Napier was going to come in and was going to make everything good again. It's going to take time. It's going to take patience. Uh, and, and of course, I also recognize that the coach is responsible for buying that patience. You have to show the necessary improvement on a week-to-week -week basis, on a month-to-month -month basis, and obviously, of course, in your results at the end of the year in order to buy continued patience from your fans. And I think that there's nothing to indicate that this coaching staff isn't aware of that. Uh, I think that they are. And I think that what needs to be given to them in return is that first season patience. I think people need to watch this product with that in mind uh, and kind of evaluate things through those colored lenses uh, in order to really, you know, uh, get the most out of the season from a learning perspective and, uh, of course, uh, in fairness to the team's new coaching staff. So uh, this was a telling game. I think that we were able to kind of extract a lot from this. Uh, if you want more of our analysis, we have plenty of it. Uh, just head on over to swamp247.com where we have plenty of written content going up on a daily basis, uh, multiple stories a day about the Florida Gators, both football, but also basketball and baseball stories as well uh, when the time comes for those things. So keep it locked on the site. Uh, and then also on our YouTube channel, if you're watching this on video format, we obviously appreciate uh, the viewership, but also uh, drop us a, a comment. Let us know what you think. Hit that uh, the like button, subscribe as well. Uh, obviously your support allows us to continue to do these kinds of things. And then again, uh, you know, uh, if you have any questions for us, we're happy to answer those. And the best way to get in touch is by subscribing over at swamp247.com. Uh, we have a massive message board community of Florida fans, uh, and you can be a part of it by just going on over to that website and hitting the uh, subscribe button. We would love to see you over there as well. Uh, and so that'll do it for this episode of the Swamp 247 podcast. We will be back later on this week with a preview of that game between number 20 Florida and number 11 Tennessee. You can look for that on Thursday. Uh, before Graham, you and I head on out to Knoxville. Uh, but without further ado, for Graham Hall, my name is Jacob Rudner, and we will see you on the next episode.
Hello, everyone. It's Michael Richards here. You might have seen me on CBS working on their Champions League coverage over the last couple of years. I wanted to tell you about an exciting new podcast that I've been working on. It's called The Rest is Football. It's me, alongside Gary Lineker and Alan Shearer, two absolute legends of the game. The show combines topical debate from the world of soccer along with outrageous tales from our careers. And I mean, outrageous. Just search The Rest is Football wherever you get your podcasts. All the best from Big Meets. <laughs> 